Well, God is good. And all the time, grateful to be here with you today. Well, there have been a plethora of superhero movies over the last couple of decades. One of my favorites is one of the franchise. They've done this a couple times, the Spider-Man franchise, but a few back. It's the one from the early 2000s where the actor Tobey Maguire plays Peter Parker, a nice but geeky kid, a bit of a pushover and a joke to his classmates. Peter Parker gets bitten by a radioactive spider and one day wakes up with super strength and agility and super senses and voila, we have Spider-Man. Well, as he is this young man who really hasn't any, been influential, had any type of power in his life, he starts to experiment with these superpowers and it's pretty awkward. But he starts to show off his impressive powers and tries to impress the girl of his dreams, Mary Jane Watson. He kind of pays back some people who have mistreated him. And you can see that he, though, is headed in a direction that he wasn't raised to head in. He begins to be selfish. Think about only himself and think about how he can use these superpowers to fulfill the dreams that will serve him and him alone. Uncle Ben, who plays a father figure to Peter, he's kind of like a Peter's adopted father, can tell that Peter is on the wrong path for his life and desires to have a conversation with him. And in this Spider-Man movie from the early 2000s, a classic scene, Uncle Ben has Peter in the car. Uncle Ben's driving. They're on a busy New York City street. They pull over. And before Peter can get out, Uncle Ben wants to have a heart-to-heart with his nephew, whom he sees as a son. Peter, in this moment, is just itching, just itching to get out of the car. He does not want to have just a conversation with this adult. He wants to go do what he wants to do. Uncle Ben wanted to have this heart-to-heart with tears in his eyes, love in his heart. His arm is on the seat, leaning over to Peter, says a very classic line that many of you probably know. He says to Peter, with great power comes great responsibility. This is a thread that is in the movie that just because Peter has the power doesn't mean Peter knows how to use the power well. Well, this is the final week of our Superheroes of the Bible sermon series, and I've had a whole lot of fun sharing this with you. I hope you have as well. We've looked at these rich characters of the Bible, and they've had a lot to teach us. And today, we dive into this final character, Daniel. We look at his life, and we ask the question, How do we use the power that God has given us? You know, whenever you become a follower of Christ, whenever you say yes to Jesus, really you are drenched in power from on high. You go from spiritual death to spiritual life. Whenever you say yes to Jesus, the Spirit of God pours into you and you have a supernatural gift that you 
can now use in harmony with God's church to serve God and his people. Also, whenever you say yes to Jesus, you have the spirit of God poured into you that you might have the fruit of the spirit. This is the unblemished character of Christ living in your life. Whenever you embrace Jesus, we, you have a otherworldly divine-like power that is at work in your life. Whenever you embrace Jesus, you now bring prayers to a God who hears your prayers and can answer those prayers and make the impossible possible. You have access to all this power that is from on high. But just because we have the power doesn't mean we know how to use it. And through the life of Daniel, we'll get a great picture on how we use that power well. Let's contextualize this for us today. We're around the sixth century BC. The book of Daniel itself is set right after Babylon's first attack on Jerusalem. The Babylons, they plunder the temple, they plunder Jerusalem, and they send the Israelites out into exile, but that's not the only thing that they plunder from the people of Israel. They do a brain drain. They take some of Israel's smartest and most talented young people and then begin to incorporate them into their kingdom. Daniel is one of them. Reverend Ashley shared about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as well. But we are decades after that in our story today. Now we have a new power, a new power again taking over. It is the Persian Empire. And when Persia takes over Babylon, there's a need that arises right away. They needed an efficient way to run this kingdom. Darius the Mede is the new king, and Darius isn't someone who just wants to conquer the territory and forget about it and move on. Darius wants to conquer the territory and establish his kingdom to make it proficient and make people understand that he is the king. So what does he do? He needs to appoint overseers. Why? He's got to appoint overseers over 120 provinces. Why? So that they know he's the king, so there won't be tax evasion and there will be no uprisings among the people. The king needs to exert his control. New kingdom needs to exert his control and his authority, and he needs to do it fast. So divides the kingdom, 120 provinces. There's a governor over each providence. But then he also needs a few overseers, three overseers, to see those 120 governors who are over those provinces. He needs three people, but these can't just be any three people in this high place of authority. He's looking for something to, with these three overseers. He really wants someone who is incorruptible. He wants a group of people that are always looking to his best interest, someone who has loyalty. Now, one might think that when a kingdom changes over from one to the next, an entire new administration is brought in. Well, that's not the case, especially when it comes to Daniel. Daniel has been there for decades, and whenever this King Darius sees Daniel, he sees something very special about him. Not only does King Darius ask Daniel to stay a part of his administration in one way or another, he elevates Daniel to one of these top three roles in 
the new kingdom. Now, here's what we need to know about Daniel. Daniel is a young man no longer. It was decades earlier when he was a teenager, originally brought, and when we think about maybe the Nebuchadnezzar story with Daniel, that was decades later. This man is in his 70s, possibly in his 80s at this time, but here's what Daniel's got going for him. He does have a proven track record, and he has experience, and maybe, just maybe, because Daniel has always been an outsider, Darius trusts him a little bit more. Maybe he's thinking that Daniel is not entangled in local politics or local traditions. Perhaps that he can have a little bit of objectivity where some of the ones who have been around and been a part of this, who are locals, they may be lacking that. One of the questions that comes up here when you get this Daniel guy near 80 years old, can he possibly do the job? Can he possibly learn the new responsibilities that have been entrusted to him? Well, guess what? Not only does Daniel survive with this new, this new responsibility, Daniel thrives. Darius starts to see how Daniel is in a league of his own. Darius sees Daniel's work ethic, how he handles himself. And here's the big one, friends. Darius notices something, that whatever Daniel touches, it flourishes. Why is this important? Because in antiquity, even though most of these kings that we know about from antiquity are not followers of the God of Israel or don't even acknowledge the God of Israel, they were polytheists. They believed in multiple gods. They were people who had some type of belief. And one of the things they believed is that when someone, if there was a person who whatever they touched flourished, if they had the Midas touch, then the gods were giving a wink of approval to that person. And if the gods were giving a wink of approval to that person, you wanted to make sure that they were a part of your administration. And there was a little bit in the heart of ancient kings not to mess with those type of people because they have this favor over, over them. He notices, Darius noticed that about Daniel. And this one day, Darius, after observing all of this about Daniel, his work ethic, how he's incorruptible, this divine favor upon him, Darius comes to the real, realization, this Daniel guy is so good, is so trustworthy, he's so blessed, I can put him in charge of everything. I could put him in charge of my whole kingdom. And as we slow this down now for a moment, the scripture then begins to pop up a question for us, especially in this later stage of Daniel's life. Why does this keep happening to Daniel? Daniel is now found favor as an outsider with the third king. We've had Nebuchadnezzar, we've had Belshazzar, And now, Darius. Why does this man keep rising with favor, even in the midst of change and discontinuity and politics? Here's why. The favor is there because Daniel decided at one point in his heart that he was going to be a follower of God. Daniel made a commitment to God, and God's power poured into his life. What do we first need to learn about God's power in our life? 
There is power when you commit your life to God. When we decide in our hearts that we are going to follow God, like a sailboat on the water, we get a wind push from the Spirit. What gives you this power? Your commitment to God. Friends, whenever we show that commitment to God, the power of the Spirit will rush into our lives. When I was pastoring in a small town, there was a guy that I got to know uh, named Dana. I got to know his wife, Audrey, as well. And Dana, by the time I got to know him, he was in his late 40s, but uh, Dana was kind of known as being a wild child growing up, pretty, pretty wild uh, in his 20s and 30s as well. Well, how it all worked is that I got to officiate his wedding. I started to get to know him a little bit, and Dana be- began to make steps on committing his life to God. He started coming to church. I led him into a relationship with Christ. He was baptized. And through his relationship with Jesus, he was beginning to experience a life that he had not had before. Then his wife and he decided that they wanted to expand his HVAC business and they wanted her to start a, a boutique. And so they started, they started to make plans to build a new building in town. And he called me one day and he said, Reverend Mike, I want to do this the right way. I want to commit this to God. And he called me out there and I got to do a blessing over the ground and he decided that this new building, this expanded business wasn't gonna be just about him. It was about how could he use this for God's kingdom as well. And guess what happened? His business exploded with growth. Exploded with growth. And I never forget the call he gave me. He's like, this is unbelievable. I know this is God doing something that I could not have done. What did Dana do? He gave back to the church. And what that says to me is that he kept his end of the bargain with God. He stayed true to his end of the commitment to God. When he was greatly blessed, he gave back to God. Whenever we commit to God, he sends more power our way. Why? Because he knows that we're going to use his power the right way, friends. God looks often to us and he says will you commit to me and once you commit I will send you power and I think sometimes we are not seeing the power of God in our lives because we haven't committed there are no loopholes with that for us to learn to use God's power in our life we have to commit our lives to Jesus there's a story I read recently about a old comedian and actor uh, named W.C. Fields. Now, Fields was an uh, early 20th century actor and comedian. He was a writer, too. And Fields' comedic persona was kind of a crude, hard-drinking, egocentric, who a uh, part of his comedic performance was he didn't like dogs or animals as well. And it was always in a state of inebriation. Well, when he came to the final illness of his life, he was in a hospital And neither his doctors or his friends thought that uh, they had much hope for him surviving. And one of his friends who knew Fields for years was, uh, and knew that Fields really had disdain for religion, disdain for anything moral or godly, was shocked whenever he came and saw Fields in the hospital room one day. Whenever he walked in the hospital room, W.C. Fields was in a hospital bed reading the Bible. 
And his friend in shock and utter amazement said, W.C., what in the world are you doing? And W.C. replied, well, I'm looking for loopholes. You know, sometimes in our lives too, we're not seeing the power of God because we are lacking the commitment to God. But all we have to do is commit our lives to God and the power will come. And for you, those of you who have been following Christ a long time, there may be something in your life that's not going. A situation, a relationship, and you're wondering, why is it not moving in this kind of powerful way that I've seen God move in the past? And sometimes we forget that the reason why we had those victories in the past is because we took time to commit whatever that is to God, that relationship, that situation. And I would just remind you, if you feel like you're not getting the Holy Spirit power that you normally have seen in the past, I'd ask you the question, have you committed it to God? Because once you commit it to God, the power of God is going to fall upon that situation and your life. Daniel has been committed to God in God's ways, not just a recent occurrence in his life. He's been like that for decades. He has this good work ethic, this love for people, not a complainer. He's been striving to stay faithful. And he is about to be elevated to be put in charge of all of King Darius's affairs. And you could see why King Darius would celebrate someone like Daniel. Daniel is really the desire of his heart, someone who can rule his kingdom, establish his kingdom. Darius is happy to have him in that place. And you would hope that the peers around Daniel his colleagues, those people under him would also celebrate that success, his promotion. But that's not gonna happen in our story t- today. What comes next in Daniel's story? We get the good old jealousy and scheming. That's what's next. Let's go to our text. Then the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling government affairs, but they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. So they concluded, our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. Because The king planned to set Daniel over all the leaders. Jealousy is set off like a firework. Maybe some of Daniel's peers saw the new regime come in and thought, well, this is our time to shine. Others may have been upset that this exile from Jerusalem continues to get in these exalted positions. But jealousy, disgruntledness is bouncing over all over the text. Jealousy can push a person to do things that they shouldn't do. Jealousy invites a person to make someone else look bad, and that is what these group of leaders are wanting to do with Daniel. There's about three years between my older daughter, Nora, and my younger daughter, Ava. And when Nora was five and Ava was two, we could tell that Nora was starting to get a little bit jealous 
of that attention her little sister was receiving. Valerie and I noticed this, but we also know it's just a stage of development and, and that type of thing happens. Now at the time, Nora, I think, was in her second year of preschool. You can go to preschool like for years now, like for four or five years. It's, it's insane. Uh, but she was in her second year of preschool at the time, and she was learning, Nora was learning to write her name, and she could write a few other words as well. Ava, of course, just like six months earlier, just learned how to really uh, grab onto a crown. If you would have said something to Ava at the time about writing, she would have, or about coloring, and you gave her a piece of paper and a crayon, she would have just done this. She was in that developmental stage. She couldn't do anything beyond that. Well, one morning, I went into Nora's room to wake her up, and Nora then went to the bathroom, and I happened to look down at Nora's dresser, and what did I see on the top of Nora's dresser? I saw a carving, a carving with three letters, A-V-A, Ava, carved in to her dresser with also a big carved in circle, a carved circle around the name Ava. Well, I called Nora into her room, and I said, Nora, what is this? She said, she looked at it, she said, I don't know. <laughs> I asked, who did this? Nora said, I don't know. I said, you, so you don't know who carved that into your dresser? She responded, shrugged her shoulders and said, I don't know, Daddy. It's not my name. <laughs> and just walked away. The attention Ava was getting got in Nora's head, and she needed to do something to cast her sister in a bad light. The favor and promotion on Daniel's life is so jarring to the other leaders that scheming and plotting starts to occur, and they will do anything to put Daniel in a bad light. And not only do they want to put him in a bad light, they want to totally eliminate him. So they begin to look at his life. They think there's some flaw. There's got to be some flaw with this man, the way he handles himself, the way he works. And when they examine his life, they can find absolutely nothing, nothing in his character, nothing in the way he works, nada. But then they keep scheming and they figure it out. They're going to use his religious devotion against him. What do we know? We know that, of course, he is a Jew. He is a strict monotheist, meaning that he only worships the one and only God and that God alone. And so what they want to do is set a trap for Daniel, set a trap where he will, be, he will either have to worship another God or disobey the king. So that is what these officials do. They go into the king, and they want to sell their plan to him. They kind of boost the king's ego talk about how they're all in unity, how there should be a law in effect for 30 days that whenever someone prays over this 30 days, it should be to no other person or divine being but to you and you alone, king, and make it an irrevocable law. And if anyone does not obey this law, king, they should be thrown in the den of lions. What does King Darius do when he hears this? He gives a thumbs up. He said, that's a great idea. Now, what is Darius thinking? Is he really desiring to be worshiped as like this divine king? We know we don't know, maybe even not, but he does need to know that he 
that everyone in the kingdom needs to realize that he is the new king. They need to oblige him of this or death will come. This will establish his throne to all the new people. So what's he do? He signs this law into effect. Now we start to feel the tension of the text. What will Daniel do when he finds out about this law? We saw with Esther, we know she was scared to death and she started to try to get away from the responsibilities that God had for her. Will Daniel do the same? We also think about his life for decades. He's believed to be this follower of God. In this moment, will we really see a follower of God or someone who starts to go and hide? Let's go to the text. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with its windows open towards Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. Then the officials went together to Daniel's house and found him praying and asking for God's help. With death hanging over Daniel's actions, will Daniel do something different? He does not. He doesn't shut the windows. He doesn't close the curtains. Instead, he does what he's always done. He gets down on his knees. He prays with thanks to his God, and he comes with God requesting help. Daniel, too, we need to know, knows the consequence of his actions. He doesn't think that the king is going to exclude him from this punishment, and even perhaps, and he knows he's framed, and perhaps the moment that he was going to be a Elevated to this new position, he knew that the politics were going to put him in this situation where he would be betrayed, where people would try to stab him in the back. Maybe he knew this was coming. What do we observe from Daniel? He has political power. This is what's important. He has political power, he has influence, he has resources. He could try to flee the kingdom if he wanted to. He could try to turn on those who betrayed and framed him. He could lash out. Wouldn't we all want to lash out in that moment? But that's not what Daniel does. He does something, but that's not it. What does he do? He goes to prayer. What do we learn from Daniel about how we use the power God has given us? There is, we need to know there is power when you pray. Where do you go first with life's problems, big or small? Prayer should always be the first place that you go. Is there something that's bothering you? Where do you go when something bothers you? Do we need each other? Of course. Are there ways that we work through the struggles we go through? Of course. But the first place that we should go is prayer. And that's where Daniel went. Whether the problem is big or small, Facing persecution like Daniel or lifting something up that's bothering you from last week. There is power, friends, when we go to prayer. And one of the things that I think I've encountered the last few years, there are some people that think that there are things that are too small to bring to God. Like we're wasting God's time. You know, there was a woman once who came up to one of the great preachers of the last century G. Campbell Morgan, and she wanted to talk to him about prayer. And during the conversation, uh, Reverend, she said to Reverend Morgan, you know, Reverend Morgan, I only take the big things to God. 
I don't take the little things to God. And G. Campbell Morgan looked at, at her and said, ma'am, you need to remember this. Anything you take to God is little. That is precisely the case. You can bring everything to God because anything you bring to God is little to him, even if it's big to you. And I think some of us out there may need to know that we are not bothering God with our prayers. We're not wasting the big man upstairs' time when we go to pray to God. You were built to talk to God. The God station is open 24-7 for your request. We can see this in the Bible from the psalmist saying, give your burdens to the Lord and he will take care of you. To Jesus saying, ask and you shall receive. Or Paul saying, don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. Tell God what you need. We have a God who's looking for us to bring our requests to him. It doesn't matter if those requests are big or small. And Daniel knows that. Daniel, for years, has taken his requests to God three times a day when they were small requests and big requests. And he knows that the same God who can answer the big prayers is the one who asks the little one. The God who answers the little one is the same one who answers the big one. And instead of leaning into his resources, instead of leaning into his skill set, Daniel decides that he is going to Lean into prayer and wait for God's power to come. Well, the conspirators, they seize their moment. Daniel's enemies spy on his prayers. Whenever he goes up to pray, they spy and they think, gotcha. The trap has been sprung. They knew that Daniel couldn't give up his religion. So they run to the king and they ask, hey, king, didn't you sign a law? A law that said that if any person prays to anyone but you, they'll be thrown into the den of lions? The king says, yes, and it can't be revoked. And they say, well, Daniel, he is praying to his God still three times a day. He is a lawbreaker. And what we see in this moment is that the king becomes deeply troubled. He realizes a couple things. One, and most important to the king, is that he's been tricked by his high officials. But we also know that he realizes how important Daniel was to the kingdom that he was establishing. And that guy like Daniel is even more important now because he knows that this new administration is not loyal to him. So he tries to think his way through, is there any way that I can get Daniel out of this lion's den? And he realizes that he can't do it. So what does he do? He's gotta send the order. Sends the order for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. And in this moment, we don't see anything from Daniel in terms of him fighting or him saying a word. He just goes in this direction towards the den of lions. He goes into the pit. The pit is sealed. The ravenous lions are inside. The king goes home, terrified of the mistake that he's made. Then the next morning comes. Let's go to the text. Very early the next morning, the king got up and hurried out to the lion's den. When he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God whom you serve so faithfully able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, long live the king. My God sent his angels to shut the lion's mouth so they would not hurt me. 
for I have been found innocent in his sight, and I have not wronged you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den. Not a scratch was found on him, for he trusted in his God. So when sunrise comes, the king makes his way anxiously anxiously to the lion's den. He comes, he cries out to Daniel, both in anguish and in hope. And Daniel responds, King, my God has sent an angel to shut the mouths of lions. And not only did these ravenous lions not kill Daniel, there's not a scratch that can be found on him. And whenever Darius lays eyes on Daniel, And he sees this impossible act that has occurred, that not only is Daniel not being killed, Daniel doesn't have a scratch on him. He sees Daniel's absolute vindication, that thing in his heart that said that this guy's got some type of divine favor over him is seen to be true. It is confirmed in that moment. So what does the king do? declares Daniel innocent and retribution retribution then falls on all those officials that falsely accused Daniel and all those associated with them. The king has all of them thrown into the pit of ravenous lions and God did not keep their mouths shut. Then the king sends a message through his kingdom that all people should fear Daniel's God whose reign will never end. Friends, what do we learn about God's power through the life of Daniel. There is power when you trust in God. Daniel was in a situation outside of his control. Anyone in a situation outside of your control? And instead of being like his enemies that manipulated the situation, Daniel trusted in his God. How do you use God's power? You gotta trust that God can do what you cannot. You gotta trust that God can make the impossible possible. You know, there's a story from early church history, the first century, when the church was under persecution. The Roman emperor of the time was uh, Domitian, and as Domitian persecuted the church, something funny started to happen as the story goes. He started to hear that Jesus, whose church he was persecuting, was supposed to come back one day and claim his kingdom. And probably by the power of the Holy Spirit, Domitian couldn't get this out of his his head. It was that the Holy Spirit was just coming after him for persecuting his church. And Domitian starts to get frantic. He's trying to figure out who has inside information who can tell me about this Jesus. And he starts searching throughout his whole kingdom to find that information. And the story goes at the time Jesus' grandnephews were still alive. The grandsons of one of Jesus' brothers were still alive, and Domitian had them brought to him. And what we see in the moment is that they were not afraid to say that they were followers of Christ, even in the midst of a persecution. And when asked about Jesus and his kingdom, they didn't bat an eye. They answered that Jesus' kingdom was not an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly one. They said Jesus' kingdom would appear at the end of the world. And when Jesus would come again, he would judge everyone according to his works, even the king. And Domitian, when he heard this come from these commoners, he couldn't believe he was being talked to in this way. And he said, who are you? What do you do for a living? He asked them, what is your net worth? (laughs) And they said, king, we are just working class people. 
And what they did was they reached out their hand to Domitian. And he, they showed their hands. And their hands were just working class hands, hardened, calloused, and dirty. The boldness of the men, you know, could have caused them great harm. But instead, instead, Domitian dismissed them from his presence and let them go. And it's believed that what Domitian heard that day from these men made him put a stop to the persecution of the church. Why? It wasn't because they were powerful people. It's because they were regular people that encountered an all-powerful God. You know, as we close up shop now, and we think about all these stories that we've heard about these incredible superhero-like characters, these rich, remarkable characters of the Bible, what makes them so remarkable? Is it because they had superpowers? No. Is it because they really had the victory? No. They were but a flesh. What makes them superheroes, friends, is that they served a remarkable God, a God so powerful that he overcame their flaws, their obstacles, and their enemies. And as we finally finish up, we can all be these type of superheroes of the Bible, but it doesn't start with our victory. It doesn't start with our abilities or our power or our experience. We need to be like Jesus's grand nephews coming to this world like King Domitian. All we have to do every day is just put out our hands and show that we are but flesh. We are but workers of his kingdom. We are but his servants and his children. And as we have that type of humility, as we approach God in prayer that way, our God will fill our lives with power and we can be his superheroes in this time. As we finish up this series, we've been praying a prayer throughout every single week. You should have got one of these cards, prayer cards when you came in. That is for you. If this resonated with you, it's something you can pray throughout the entire week. Will you pray this closing prayer with us about how we use God's power? Pray this with me. God, I often try to fight my battles without you. I confess that I'm trying to defeat obstacles that only you have victory over. I surrender and receive victory over the enemies in my life that only you can defeat. In Jesus' strong name, amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time in the series. We thank you for these remarkable characters that we've got to study over these last five weeks. And God, truly, what makes us like these characters is not this overwhelming song of victory from us. It's an overwhelming song of victory from you. So God, we come today, we surrender, and we say we are your people. And we ask, Lord, that you would put your power in and through our lives. We pray this through Jesus' strong name, amen.